You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. Today our reading comes from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Sechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb, the word of the Lord. All righty. Well, thank you, church family. Good to see you here this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful you're with us. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be here this week. We are, it's been seven months since we left off in our study in Genesis, this book of beginnings that is not only the the origins of the universe and the origins of human history, but is also primarily the origins of redemptive history. And uh, we started this journey uh, many, many months ago, left off seven months ago. We are um, going to pick up here in chapter 12. I'm going to do this uh, here this morning. It's been a minute, so I'm going to take just a few minutes up front, do a little recap of the first 11 chapters so we get caught up where we are. We're going to do a little deep dive Bible study for a little bit. And, uh, and then I'm going to do some preaching here at the end, okay? So that's where we're going, chapter 12. But when we look back on this, this glorious book, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, it begins with a preexistent, eternal, triune God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, who creates the heavens and the earth with just the word of his mouth. And in just six days, he forms and he fills everything visible and invisible. Everything that he makes is perfect. It's good. It's a demonstration of his glory. We see in there that the crown jewel of his creation is humanity. Male and female, he has made them. The only part of his creation that was actually made in his image to reflect his glory But the tragedy that we saw by the time we got to the third chapter is that rather than reflecting his glory, mankind chose to rebel against that glory. The man and the woman listened to the voice of the serpent, uh, a fallen angel by the name of Satan. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbid them to eat of. This rebellion that we see take place, biblically speaking, it's called sin. And it is a purposeful deviation from God's created order and moral law. And with it came some serious consequences. The man and the woman are left naked, ashamed, alienated from God and from one another. Serious judgments, curses are issued by God as a consequence for their sin against them, against their offspring, which would include you and I, anybody who's come from that first man and woman against Satan himself, even a curse against the physical earth and the universe in which we live. And yet, in the midst of all those judgments, in the midst of all those cursings, there is hope because God promises, even though sin has broken everything, God promises Adam and Eve that through Eve's offspring will come a son, 
a son who will be born to deliver the human race from Satan, from these curses, one who will crush the head of the serpent, yet in doing so, he himself will have his heel bruised. And the question that Genesis begins asking from chapter three forward up until where we're at right now is ultimately, who is that son? Who is that serpent crusher that will come? And with every birth that takes place after Adam and Eve here, every birth that takes place, there is great anticipation that this is the promised redeemer. And yet with every birth also comes great disappointment because as each son himself is born, they are filled with the same sin and they fall short of the glory of God and his redemptive purposes. But the promise still continues through Eve's genealogical tree. And in fact, that's what you need to know about Genesis. Genesis is ultimately a book that is written in such a way that it's divided up by 10, and we use the Hebrew word 10, toledotes. Toledot is the Hebrew word that means generations. 10 times in the book of Genesis, you're gonna see, and these are the generations of, and these are the generations of. Genesis is ultimately a book of genealogies because in each genealogy, we are tracing the promised line of redemption. The genealogical branch that God promises through this line, that redeemer is gonna come. That is what Genesis is doing and it's doing it by contrasting that promised line against the wicked unrighteousness of the rest of the lines that fill up humanity and the world. And so again, every birth, there's this anticipation. Eve has the, the son Cain, her firstborn. Well, certainly that's him. Certainly that's him. In fact, his name means he's here. She thought it was him and it wasn't. And so God says, no, I'm not gonna do it that way. I'm not gonna use Cain, the firstborn. I'm gonna use Seth. And Seth is going to be through whom the promised line will come. And through Seth comes Enoch. And this is the first of the generations in Enoch who are going to worship God. And yet it's juxtaposed against these other lines in which wickedness and unrighteousness is occurring. And we keep going from line to line to line, each birth going, maybe this is him. And it's not. But the promise continues. And it goes from Seth eventually to Enoch, uh, all the way down to Methuselah, and then to Lamech. And at this point, the depravity of mankind upon the earth has grown to such a level that God says, I'm gonna wipe it clean. I'm gonna start over. And he floods the earth. And even though it's filled with disappointment, that certainly the Redeemer has not come, yet God spares one, Noah and his family. And he renews the promise that through this line, this redeemer is gonna come. And yet with Noah, even we see in him, sin is still present. And eventually Noah's descendants begin to culminate at what we saw in chapters 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel. Many of Noah's descendants that came together rather than fanning out as God had called them to do upon the earth, they came together and in rebellion, they sought to build a tower to the heavens so that they can make a great name for themselves. The city of man is opposed to the city of God that he promised. And as a judgment, God comes down and he confuses their language and he spreads them across the earth. And once again, we are met with disappointment and yet also we are met with a glimmer of hope. Because in Noah's line, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and God promises through the line of Shem, my redeemer will come for you. And that leads us here now to chapter 12. I want you to look at verse one of chapter 12. Notice the very first few words. Now the Lord said to Abram, or as we're gonna call him here in just a few chapters, Father Abraham. We're gonna write a song about him. We are at what is arguably the most significant chapter in all of Genesis. As one scholar put it, the next few verses that we're about to look at may just indeed be the most critical section in all the Bible when it comes to understanding and interpreting redemptive history as seen fulfilled in the New Testament and pertaining to you and I right here in this room. For 11 chapters now, 
we have seen this macrocosmic view of creation and the, the forming and filling of the nations. For 11 chapters, that's why we entitled this The Foundations of the Faith. The first 11 chapters are foundational in establishing creation and what sin is and what the promise of redemption is and uh, how civilization is made and formed and established. And now, starting in chapter 12, the camera is going to zoom in. And we're going to lock in on one family. It's why the next section from chapter 12 all the way to 50, we're calling it the father or the fathers of the faith. We're going to look at this close-up view of this one family, this one man, this one family in three generations of his that will cover the rest of the book. Think about this for just a moment. 11 chapters to cover millennia of creation and humanity And then 39 chapters, four-fifths of the book to look at one man and his family. I don't know about you, I think we would prefer God spend a little bit more time on the creation part. Let's linger there a little bit. I wonder how that thing was made. But no, it's not the point of this book. The point of this book is to focus on redemption. And it comes through this one man that tells you something significant about this man named Abraham that we're about to look at here. Indeed, half the world's population today traces their spiritual faith back to this man. Christians, Jews, and Muslims all trace their spiritual lineage back to this man. Something is significant about this man. And the question is, who is he? Why is he so significant in this narrative? Well, I'm glad you asked. Before we look at chapter 12, we need to look at the last few verses of chapter 11 because they are what sets this whole thing up. Super important. Follow along with me. I'm gonna read verses 27 to 32 of chapter 11. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram and his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. I want to give you three quick observations that you need to be aware of in order to understand where we're going in chapter 12, based on that text we just read. Number one, Abram is the son of Terah. Why is that important? Terah, according to chapter 11, is a descendant of Shem. Remember back in Genesis 9, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? God cursed Ham for sinning against his dad and he promised that from now on that Ham and his descendants will serve Shem. Now that's a big deal because Ham, he had a son named Canaan. If you've ever heard of the Canaanites, These are from Ham's line. Ham's son was Canaan, and the Canaanites would spread out, and they would fill the land that is near the Mediterranean Sea in what is known as today Israel or Palestine. These were the Hamites, the Canaanites, who filled that land. Shem became the line of promise. His descendants would be known as Shemites, It's through the Shemites that the Redeemer would come. Well, you know what happened? When Alexander the Great came along and he took the Old Testament and copied it in Greek, they couldn't pronounce the H in Shemites and neither could the following Germanic tribes. So the name got changed to Semites. So if you wanna know where Semites comes from, what is known as the Jewish people, they are Shemites who filled this land 
there in Mesopotamia. And so Terah and his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, they're not randos in the storyline here. Abram is not just some random dude that God said, I'm gonna pick you and make you a great nation, do all these great things with. No, they are from the line of Shem. This is in keeping with the promise that God, who is a promise maker, is a promise keeper. And so they are the promised line of Shem, the one from whom the Redeemer will come. And as you can already tell, of the three sons of Terah, God is gonna choose the line of Abram for this Redeemer to come. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Second thing is that Abram's name means exalted father. It's what Abram means, which is deeply ironic because what we learn from chapter 11 there is that this man had a wife named Sarai who was childless. She was barren. Funny name, father, for a guy who can't have any kids. But God says, that's how I'm gonna play this. And even more ironic is that by the time we get to chapter 17, God's gonna rename this man Abraham, which means exalted father of many. Even funnier than a guy that can't have kids is a guy that can't have a lot of kids. And this is exactly what I'm gonna do through you, Abram. And so God's promise is going to be miraculous. So I want you to see that. And the third thing I want you to see is that we're told in chapter 11 where Abram's family comes from. They come from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, where is that? That is located in ancient Mesopotamia. It'd be modern day Iraq today, right on the border of Iraq, Iran, better known as the region of Babylonia. Remember the Tower of Babel that we saw chapters 10 and 11. Babel um, began as an attempt by man to rebel against God to make a city that would glorify man, not glorify God. And so the whole kingdom of Babylon that would originate later started as a region and then became an empire devoted to the worship of anything other than Yahweh, other than the true God. So therefore, throughout scripture, as well as throughout human history, the term Babylon became emblematic of man-made religion and false worship that is centered around the flesh rather than God, which is deeply ironic that one of the movies in the theater right now is called Babylon that is meant to show you the spirit of Babylon that originated in the underbelly of Hollywood 100 years ago that is centered on man and man's kingdom on earth rather than God's kingdom on earth, which is filled with debauchery. This is Ur. This is what Ur of the Chaldeans was, the epicenter of hedonistic idol worship So what is a Shemite family doing living here in this region if they are the line of promise? Well, we know they settled here after the Tower of Babel, but sadly, as a descendant of Noah, the Shemites here, of which Abram is a part of, Joshua chapter 24 tells us that Terah's family departed from the worship of Yahweh and took on the worship of the idols of their day in Ur. This is an idol-worshiping family. They are not worshiping Yahweh. And so you can see this whole story forming. God is flexing here. If we were to provide a savior, we're gonna pick the the, the most good-looking person, the king of some great empire. What's God gonna do? I'm gonna take an idol-worshiping man who can't have any kids, who has no strength of his own, and I'm gonna do through him what no man can do because I'm gonna flex and I'm gonna show that it is my sovereignty that will bring about your salvation, not your own works. So the seedbed of redemptive history is being formed here. So what exactly is God doing in chapter 12? Let's dive in here. Chapter 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What is God doing here? God is picking back up on the line of promise. From Eve to Seth, all the way down to Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah and Shem and now Abram. And God is calling him back to himself. 
to leave the idolatry that was there in Ur and come to a land and a line of promise so God can fulfill his ultimate plans of redemptive history. Now, we'll talk about the insanity of Abraham's response and following here in just a moment, but I want you to notice six major promises that God makes to Abraham, the first five of which are in verses two and three. Listen to these. He tells Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's camp on these and I'll show you another one. First of all, first promise God makes, I will make of you a great nation. Not just give you a child and a family, but in the face of the table of nations that we saw in chapters 10 and 11, of all who forsook the Lord, I'm gonna make from you, Abram, a new nation, an actual geo-ethnic group with common land, common language, with God as their king, as we'll soon see, the people of Israel. Second, I will bless you. Blessing in the Old Testament sense typically entailed prosperity, fertility, or victory. It is the favor of God on an individual for a particular purpose. This encompasses both spiritual and physical bounty that God is promising Abraham for his purposes. And thirdly, I will make your name great. And you need to know, as we'll see, this is not in the sense of vain glory like we saw with Babel, those people trying to make a great name just for themselves. But Abraham's name, as it pertains to God's promise of redemption, will be a name that will never be unknown. It'll always be associated with faith in the promises of God for redemption. In that degree, the glory of his name will not terminate on his own name, but will exist for the glory of God's name. And in fact, I want you to note something here. The last two promise there of blessing and of a great name, they come with the specific purpose of not having those things terminate on Abraham, but for the purpose of being able to bless others. God's blessing in the scriptures is never used as the kings of other nations will use it, or as we have come to know it in the Western culture here of hoarding blessings for ourselves, for our own comfort and our own purposes and our own advancement. No, blessing in the Old Testament sense here is always for the specific purpose of forwarding that blessing and multiplying that blessing on to others around us. This is God's great purpose in blessing Abraham so that through him, the entire earth, all the nations will be blessed. Talk about that in a minute. Now, fourth promise, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who dishonor you. To be clear, this is not about God being on team Abraham. That Abraham can just do whatever he wants. He's got a king's ex. Doesn't matter what kind of wickedness he does. Blessing's gonna go with him. Can't harm him. It's not about that. This is about God choosing Abraham to be on team God. This is not saying that God's going to curse you because you're disloyal simply to a, a fallen, flawed, particular human. This is saying that to go against Abraham is really to go against God and to go against God's redemptive purposes. And to honor Abraham is to honor God and to honor God's redemptive purposes in human history. So this promise goes with Abraham to ensure that God's plans will not fail. Fifth, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this is a biggie, this one right here. The next 10 chapters are going to investigate and expand on this particular promise right here. In one sense, yes, 
All the nations are gonna be able to benefit from the immediate blessings that will come on this new nation that is being formed through Abraham. This whole nation, Israel, that will come together, will be formed. It's to them that God will specifically reveal himself. He'll provide covenants, law, give them a Bible, will provide them ultimately with a temple where the presence of God will dwell. The people will come and worship. There will be means of atonement for sins, a clean and purified people, and all the nations can come and behold and be blessed through that. There is no doubt in the near future that's speaking to that. But ultimately, what we know today, and we'll look at in more detail in the coming weeks, is that through Abraham's offspring, this miracle genealogy that is gonna be given to a guy who can't have any kids will come a redeemer. There in a manger in Bethlehem, some 2,000 years from when this promise was made, a virgin will be betrothed to a man named Joseph, who is from the line of Abraham, who will give birth to a child that is conceived by the Holy Spirit. His name shall be Jesus, because he has come to save his people from their sins. He is the the one who will finally come and fulfill the first promise that God made to Eve and to Adam and the one that he makes here to Abraham, that he is gonna send a redeemer who will come and save a fallen humanity from their sins. That is ultimately how the nations are going to be blessed. Paul tells us this in Galatians chapter three, verses eight through nine, listen to this. Know then that it is those of faith who were the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, non-Jews, by faith, preached this gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. What this is saying is that anyone from all corners of the nations, not just Jews, not just Israel, but every ethnic group, every human that's ever lived on the face of the earth. If they will put their trust, if they will put their faith in the offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ, just as Abraham believed ahead of time and we believe in 2020, looking backwards, Just anyone who will put their faith in that promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, they will be blessed with salvation from their sins. Y'all, this is why the promise to Abraham is a big deal because this promise is what has saved us by putting our trust in it. Six promise. You're actually gonna see this one come later. You're gonna see it, just skim there, verse seven. We'll get to it in a little bit, but there's a promise in there. When God says to you, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so there is a specific promise that in resettling Abram and his descendants out of Ur, there is a new land that will be given to them by God. Where is this land? You see it at the end of verse five. It is the land of Canaan. Remember Canaan? Remember Ham and his son Canaan to whom it was promised 400 years earlier because of Ham's sin that they would end up serving the Shemites? Oh, well, that check is about to be cashed in God's promise right here. If you were to synthesize all six of these promises, you can boil them down to three major themes, land, seed, and blessing. Land, the physical place where the glory of God will dwell with his people. Seed is the offspring that would include the Messiah, ultimately, who would come. And blessing, all the benefits of redemption. And these six promises, they have near implications and they have far implications. And we're gonna drill down on each one of them here in the weeks to come to see how they became fulfilled in their day and how they're fulfilled in our day and ultimately how they'll be fulfilled in eternity. So that being said, big question, what is Abraham's response? God makes these promises, comes and reaches this dude in Ur, gives him six promises. What's he gonna do with them? Glad you asked. Look at verse four. So Abram went. 
as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and, they, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So in faith, we'll stop right there, in faith, Abraham obeys and he goes. Now, I don't think we understand just how insane this response actually is. In our day, with broken families that we really want to get away from quite a bit, with Western independence and autonomy, with the nomadic ability of transportation and job relocations that are so common, along with a general cultural expectation that we're to get out and explore, it is not unfathomable for us to be able to leave our families and our cities of origin and go live miles away and hunt in packs with other singles in another foreign place other than where we started. Many of you are living that dream right now <laughs> in this room. But this was absolutely inconceivable in ancient Mesopotamia. And certainly with Abraham and his family, Terah's family. The people of Ur were not nomadic. They settled there. Their livelihood depended upon them staying together. In that day, there was no Google, there was no Zillow by which you could look ahead and go, hey, what are the homes like in Canaan? What are the schools like there? What would be a good neighborhood to live in if we were to move there? What's the job market like there? There was none of that back in that day. There's no cars or buses or planes to shoot over there real quick or head back home when you're homesick. There's no cell phones or no Venmo to help you get out of a jam in that day when you are hundreds of miles away from everything you've ever known. For a 75-year-old idol-worshiping man with a barren wife to just pack up the family and uproot from, and notice the progression, by the way, that's intentionally put in verse one, where it starts with your country and then moves into your kindred and narrows down to your actual dad's home and family. It gets super personal. And to go to a place that you have never seen before, filled with hostile, distant relatives who hate you, all because of a self-claiming singular deity that told you to go, that's insanity. I'm trying to imagine, let's take someone in here who's maybe mid-50s single, has never been married, never had any kids, has lived in Dallas their entire life, surrounded by their immediate family, all their extended family, their cousins, everything. Let's say they don't really have a college degree, no significant career or ladder to climb up, has historically never followed God. And then one night at a family party, Jesus shows up, says, hey, it's me, Jesus. Tomorrow, need you to start hosting a garage sale. Need you to go ahead and put your house on the market. Need you to turn in your two weeks notice at your job because I'm taking to a land you've never heard of. Let's call it Zamunda. And I'm taking you there, all my coming to America fans. I'm taking you there because once you're there, oh, I'm gonna give you a spouse. I'm gonna give you kids. The whole earth for the rest of eternity is gonna be blessed through what I'm gonna do through you. You'd be like, uh, somebody's smoking something up in here, man. I ain't, that's crazy talk. I ain't doing that. Like that's how insane this is. And so with this comes the mega theme of faith that is gonna play out all through Abraham's journey and carry into all who walk in the likeness of his faith, such as you and I in relationship to Jesus Christ. I want you to note three progressions of Abraham's faith. And you need to know this, Abraham is not a superhero. Get that out of your mind. He is a flawed human being, just like you and I, who's been called to follow God into a new life, just like you and I have. 
And while the faith he demonstrates in verse four is impressive, it's actually not fully formed. Three progressions you're gonna see. A weak faith, a strengthened faith, and an established faith. Weak faith is this. Abram is actually gonna have multiple callings from God along the way to get him to obey, not just one. Chapter 11 alludes and Acts chapter seven in Stephen's sermon confirms that Abram was first called by God when he was in the Ur of Chaldeans. And in doing so, he managed to muster up enough faith and convince his dad, Terah, to take their family and head towards Canaan. So there is faith there. I don't think it's a dumb faith necessarily, an uninformed faith. I think at this moment, Terah and Abram certainly knew through oral tradition about the promise of their great-great-grandfather, Shem. So I think there's some connection there. And they're going, and so faith begins, but it's a weak faith because Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, and as we'll see here in Genesis 12, tells us that Abram actually stops and resettles in Haran, 250 miles short of Canaan, actually in an opposite direction. What's he doing? I think they started, they head out, and then they stop in Haran, and we're told again in Acts chapter seven, that God literally has to remove Abram from Haran in order to get him going again all the way to Canaan. Now, we don't know why he settled. Maybe it was doubt, maybe it was fear. Maybe as we saw, his dad dies there. Maybe his dad died on the way and he said, that's it, I'm not going any further. I'm done. Whatever it is, we are seeing a weakened faith. It wasn't fully orbed. It wasn't fully developed yet. Abram had a half-hearted, a halfway faith. I don't know about you, that actually encourages me because I don't always get it the first time. It takes a lot of times for God to keep thumping on, on my life to convince me to go. Sometimes God has to call and call and call until our faith in him and his promises actually clicks into action. But Abram is just like us here. Don't put him on a pedestal. He doesn't bleed Bible yet. He doesn't pray in the King James yet. He is a weakened sinner, just like you and I, who is learning to trust God along the way. It's important to know. But then it moves from a weak faith to a strengthened faith, and that's what we just read here. After his father dies in Haran, God appears to him a second time. That's the calling you're actually seeing in Genesis 12 is the second calling of God on his life. And after this second call, Abram and his family finally decide, okay, let's get up and let's go. Dad's died. We're not staying here in Haran. Let's pack up. Let's keep going. And so they head and they head to the land of Canaan. And I want you to see this at the end of verse five and six. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land at the place of Shechem, the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, this is important information for us. After the second call, Abram and his family, they make it to Canaan. They head to Shechem. Shechem at this time is dead center in the middle of Canaan. If you took Israel as it, as it is today and its boundaries today, Shechem is dead center right in the middle of the country. That's where they are. They're in the heart of the land of Canaan, surrounded by Canaanites. And one thing that we know Abram comes here to the Oak of Moreh. One thing we know about the Canaanites is they weren't just idol, worship, idol worshipers, they were barbaric idol worshipers. Um, about 500 years after this passage, when Joshua is leading the people finally into the land as God promised they would, God tells Joshua to go into the land, to tear down their altars, destroy their idols, and cut down their groves. Why would God tell them to go cut down trees when you get into there? It's because what we know about the Canaanites is they would plant trees and worship them as gods. And they would take a newborn baby child, they would put that child in a clay pot, and they would bury that child alive at the base of the tree as an act of worship to incite the blessing of the gods on their crops. So Abram comes and he encounters the oak of Moray. Moray means teacher. More than likely, this is an altar against this tree 
where the oracles of false teaching were taught that incited this worship to false gods. And Abraham now comes face to face with what it is that currently inhabits this land that God had called him to, that dominates the people. And all of it is juxtaposed against this new faith that Abraham has in the one true God who is the creator and sustainer of new life and in whom the promise of redemption has come. You can feel the tension here. Just as you and I have when we put our faith in Jesus with this newly formed faith. And you know what meets us right when we have this faith? The temptations and the compromise of our old ways of living. And which shall we choose? And you can feel this tension here. And yet what a grace because in this very moment, God shows up a third time. And notice the third calling of God. In verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he said to your offspring, I will give this land. And so Abram built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In the face of compromise, God reiterates the promise that this land does not belong to the Canaanites. It never has. It belongs to the Shemites. And more importantly, it belongs to the God of the Shemites, Yahweh. And though Abram won't be around to receive it when the promise gets fulfilled. It is guaranteed by God that Abram's offspring will live to see that day. And so what does Abram do? He stops and he builds an altar to Yahweh right next to the oak of Moreh. And you are now watching this man's faith move from weakened to strengthened. And from there, he'll continue on and towards the southern desert, as we see in verses eight and nine, he goes into the hill country, pitches his tent there between Bethel and Ai, two significant cities that we'll see here in days to come. And he builds another altar as he continues his journey towards the southern desert of the Negev. And it's there in the chapters ahead that we'll see him move from a strengthened faith to an established faith to the point that he'll believe God's promises so strongly, he'll be willing to lay down his own son's life because he firmly believes that if that's what God called him to do, then God's gonna have to resurrect that son in order for that promise to keep coming. As we close, can I just ask you, where is your faith in God right now? Is it weak? Is it being strengthened? Is it firmly established? Or is it non-existent at all right now? The good news is that God wants to help you increase your faith in him, just as he did with Abraham. The author of Hebrews helps us with Genesis 12 here. Hebrews chapter 11, verses one, as well as eight through 10 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Why did he do all that? Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let me just give you three quick characteristics of what biblical faith is that is gonna play itself on repeat in the chapters to come that we might evaluate our own faith in Jesus Christ right now through this lens. Number one, biblical faith is the confident assurance of things unseen. Abraham could not see the land of Canaan from Ur. Abraham could not see a day where his barren wife would give birth to their son, Isaac. Abraham could not see the entire nation of Israel gathered in Jerusalem at the temple in worship at the presence of God. Abraham could not see his descendant and his savior, Jesus Christ hanging on a cross to die for his sins. But he believed that God was not a liar. That same God who created the heavens and earth with just his mouth, the same God whom he had heard had parted the Red Sea to deliver his family, his distant family, he believed it could be so with him. If Abraham could see it, then it wouldn't be faith, it would be reason. The call of God is always come 
and then see, not see, then come. It is unlike the Lexus commercials at Christmas. Seeing is not believing. No, in fact, believing is what opens up your seeing. In the same way, biblical faith is not just having an optimistic viewpoint on life. It's not fingers crossed, hoping for the best. It's not sending thoughts and well wishes for a desired outcome. That is not biblical faith. No, for us, biblical faith is the confident assurance that what God says will happen, will happen, even if you can't possibly see it right now. That's faith. Second thing you need to know about biblical faith, biblical faith is focused on the object of our faith, not on the faith itself. In other words, you don't grow your faith by simply just having more faith. You grow your faith by increasing your focus on the object of your faith, which is Christ himself. Art Azurdia, a fallen man and yet former professor at Western Seminary, who I once worked with, he says it best here. Do you wish to be a more consistently obedient, steadily persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, a more courageous and outspoken Christian? Then you need to strengthen your faith. Your faith instinctively strengthens, however, in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. You expand your understanding of the object of your faith and faith itself will obediently follow. The object of your faith, if indeed you are a Christian, is Jesus Christ and all his promises. Is your faith weak? It is owing to the fact that you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But when Jesus Christ becomes progressively bigger, or better yet, your understanding of who he is progressively conforms to reality, then your faith will become increasingly stronger. But how does that happen? By immersing yourself in the faith-arousing word of God. Read of Jesus Christ, the same powerful word that long ago brought the universe into life is the same word that can bring you to life and furnish you with a faith that is truly and authentically Christian. As you'll see in our Genesis journey, the more time that Abraham spent with God, the object of his faith, the more his faith was established. Conversely, the less time that you and I spend with God, we cannot expect biblical faith to be kindled, let alone established. It's hard to hear from God when your Bibles are closed. We must spend time with him in intimacy and prayer and dependence. We must learn of him. We must not settle for little 15 minute nuggets every day, but deep dives into the, the, the trustworthiness of God and his word. And then we'll see our faith expand. The third last thing is that biblical faith is not mere intellectual assent but it is applied action. In other words, if there is no outward obedience and transformation in proportion to the faith that you claim, then you're just writing checks with your mouth that your life hasn't cashed. James chapter two tells us that faith without transformation is fake news. Listen to this. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. But then I'll say, show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well, you do, you do well because even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. In other words, he's saying, you will do what you believe. He's not saying you believe, you, you earn, you, do, you earn your salvation by works. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you believe and rest in the salvation provided for you, your works have got to follow. They will be produced from faith, not vice versa. If you say you believe something, but you don't live in accordance to that belief, then your claim belief is worthless. Case in point, Satan and the demonic realm have a better doctrine of the Trinity than any seminary professor that's out there. And yet not one demon is living in submission to the truth of that doctrine. How can you tell? Just look at the fruit of their works. It's not for the glory of God. It's not obedience to his command or his design. 
You see, with Abraham, the way that you know his faith in God was real is that he actually obeyed what God said. And he not, and he not only walked away from Ur, but he walked towards God. Again, Art Exerti, I think, helps us here. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it's believing God. Taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and his promises that animates you to persevere in your obedience to him. So if you wanna know if your faith in Christ is real, and we should see it worked out in your life. We should see it transform your life. Otherwise, the faith that you're claiming is not rooted in faith at all. Y'all, we are only beginning this journey in understanding faith, as we'll see expanded in the coming chapters. If you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, I would invite you right now to put your trust in the promised seed of Abraham. His name is Jesus Christ the one who came to live a righteous life that you have failed to live and I have failed to live, the one who came to die on a cross so that your sins could be forgiven and covered by his blood as a payment for our sins, the one who rose up from the grave in order to give us new life, who's seated right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, ruling and reigning so that through his spirit, our lives can be transformed more and more into his image and the one who promises that one day he's coming back and he will make all things new. And the curse that was put in in Genesis 3 will be reversed because God is not a liar. Amen? Receive that salvation through faith today and be changed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unfailing word. Thank you that the promises that you made to Abraham were not empty promises, but we are experiencing the fruit of them in this room right now. There are men and women gathered in this room right now who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who are here to worship because you are not a liar. Because what you said 4,000 years ago was true and you sent your son Jesus. Would you kindle our faith anew today, O oh Lord? Lead us more and more into trust in you and the ultimate transforming image of your son Jesus for your glory and our good. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.